0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every ten counterfeit pills contains fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thanks for joining us uh, for today's Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. The legislature is still in session. They will be up until April 2nd. Uh, Today's a a break day. They've got committee meetings today, but they are still making news, and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Stacey Abrams is making news today. We'll talk about what that is, uh, what's happening with her. Um, if you want to watch us, you can go to our Facebook live feed. Uh, just go to GPB News on Facebook and you will find us there. Uh, quick note, I want to say one more time, we're going to be in Athens on April 8th doing our show in front of a live audience the evening of Monday, April 8th. And uh, we're going to be taking some UGA alums out to do that show. Uh, Greg Bluestein will be with us. Jim Galloway is a graduate of UGA. Uh, our uh, uh, frequent uh, panelist, Audrey Haynes, political science professor at Georgia, will be part of the group. And we'll add a couple of more people before we get there. But if you're interested in joining us, just go to uh, the Political Rewind page, politicalrewind.org, and you'll see information about how you can sign up for a ticket. They're free, but we want you to register in advance because the seats go fast. So. All that said, Kevin Riley is uh, here today, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution here on uh, Tuesdays, which are the days we're lucky enough to have you join us. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? It's good to be here, as always, Bill. Uh, sitting right across uh, from Kevin is uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Emory University Professor of Political Science, your new book. Finally, Andre. Finally, I mean, out. I feel like we've talked about the fact that it was coming for two years, and it was published first- First of March? First of March. And it's a uh, Barack Obama. It's about Obama and...
0: And African-American politics, what he did for African-Americans.
1: It's available on Amazon. It
0: is available on Amazon, even though it may take a little bit of time for it to show up at your home. But you can please feel free to order it there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we've already scheduled in April a day that we're going to sit and just talk to you uh, one-on-one about the book. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. We'll have more on that as we get into the month of April Todd Reem, we haven't seen you in a while, Republican consultant, editor of GeorgiaPundit.com. It's really great to have you back in the
2: studio, Todd. Thank you. It's uh, always great to get out of my lair for a couple hours. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, if you're not reading Georgia Pundit, you should. I, I tell people all the time that Todd not only covers what we do in terms of state politics and, and as does the AJC and others, but he really drills down and you learn a lot about what's happening in local communities around the state. You also can see the dogs that are up for adoption that uh, Todd posts at the top of GeorgiaPundit.com.
2: Thank you for a pitch for the dogs, and and also note that uh, First Lady Marty Kemp is having a, a dog adoption event at the Governor's Mansion later this month. That'll I have, be really. Neat. I
1: have a feeling you will be involved in that, Mister Rehm. Uh, we might. should also say one of the other th- great things about Georgia Pundit is it reminds us of uh, important dates in. History. So, for instance, Todd, I appreciated the fact that today you reminded us that on March 12th, this day in 2007, REM was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
2: That was a particularly (laughs) fortunate piece of work because I was speaking to a potential vendor in Washington DC who named his company after one of their songs. And I asked him about it and he said I was probably the first person he had spoken to who understood where the name came from.
1: Uh, where did it come from?
2: Uh it came from the song uh, Driver 8 from I believe it was the murmur album, okay. one of their first albums. All
1: right. So there are all the things we learn when we have Todd Reim on the show. <laughs> Joining us today for the first time, Darshan Kendrick, representative Kendrick who represents uh, a big portion, a big chunk of what? South East, so I Cab have East yeah.
3: and South Gwinnett. The majority of it is in Gwinnett County, but I have Loganville, and Stone Mountain, Lithonia, and a little bit of Stonecrest.
1: You, uh, what, what? How many sessions have you served now,
3: Darshan? Does that include special sessions? Because yeah, sure. Was, How I, long
1: have you been in the legislature? So I was
3: elected in 2010 and then <laughs> sworn in in 2011. And then immediately we went into a special session for redistricting. And then, of course, we had a special session. Uh, this past year um, to allocate funds for um, the storm relief in South Georgia. So uh, it's my fifth term, but um, but it's definitely been been more than nine sessions. This is my ninth <laughs> regular session.
1: You are an attorney when you're not working out down at the legislature, uh, and you uh, grew up, you said, in Decatur. Yeah? I
3: did. Well, I'm a Grady baby, so I was born at Grady and uh, and raised in uh, DeKalb County in Decatur. Well, graduated from public high school.
1: Well, it's just great. Thank you for coming in to be a part of the show today. In just a few minutes, we're going to get to a story that you've been uh, in the news about over the last day or so. And we're lucky to have you here as that story appeared in the in the news. But Kevin, let's start with this. Um, Stacey Abrams uh, and her team made a little news over the last 24 hours or so. Uh, Abrams was down at South by Southwest she was interviewed yesterday by yamish Sindor who um and told Alcindor that she has a kind of a chart of how she's she's very organized Stacey abrams, we know this, and that her chart had always called for her to run for president in twenty twenty eight Yamish Sindor took that to mean that abrams had decided not to run sooner than twenty twenty eight and Early in yesterday's show, Jim Galloway saw Yamiche Alcindor's post, and so we said she has now declared she's not running in 2020. Well, even before the show was off, we uh, saw a tweet from Lauren Growargo, who was her campaign manager in the gubernatorial race and continues to work with uh, uh, Stacey on her organization, Fair Fight Action. And Lauren said, no, no, no. What Stacey Abrams said at South by Southwest was in, you know, talking about that spreadsheet, not her current considerations. She's taking a look at all options on the table in 2020 and beyond. And there, is, there are some people in Democratic circles who, who think that she really is looking at a presidential, putting herself into the presidential mix rather than taking on David Perdue or waiting for Brian Kemp. Well, you know,
4: I have a friend who has a spreadsheet for his life, and I thought that was strange. I, and I, it's apparently much more common than, than I realized. I do not have one. I just want everyone and anyone who's seen me live my life would not be surprised by that. But, um, I, you know, I, I'll give her credit. She is keeping herself in the conversation. It seems like there's news about uh, Stacey Abrams every day for us. Um, I just wonder if people will get tired of this at some point and say, look, we need to we need to know. Andre, what I mean, what do you think?
0: So I have said on the show before that if Beto O'Rourke is going to run, then perhaps Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams need to be encouraged to run. Um, So in general, I say all of that to say that if you just lost a statewide race, then perhaps the next step is not running for national (laughs) office. Uh, but if we people are going to go there, then we need to consider the African-American candidates alongside the white candidates. And I didn't get where Betelmania was coming from. Mm. So in that respect, I am not surprised that she would be in, you know, her State of the Union, um, you know, response to President Trump was extremely well received. Um, you know, there has been some speculation that if she's going to throw her hat in the race for president, that really what she is aiming for is to perhaps be a vice presidential contender. I would say that if that is, in fact, the case, there are people who were seriously considered for vice president who did not run for president on the ticket. We don't even have to go back that far. We could even look at 2016 to actually see examples um, of that. Um, And so I think... I think what people are going to read into this is, one, what's the calculation? Does she think she could actually beat David Perdue in 2020? Like, that may be a reason to go run for something else if you think that you might lose, uh, because the cost of losing that Senate race would probably be more serious than losing a presidential bid that people thought was far-fetched anyway. Um, But there's also just this, you know, sort of idea of, you know, where could she be of most use and especially in a cycle where Republicans are going to be in battle because there's so many people running, you know, apart from President Trump being wildly popular, picking up a Democratic Senate seat actually, you know, might actually be more impactful um, than making a run for the presidency that probably isn't going to get past the first few primaries.
1: So, uh, Todd, you're a political consultant. If, if you had, let, let's just pretend you're a Democrat for a couple of minutes and, and let's pretend further that you've got somebody working with, you're working with who wants to run against David Perdue, who's hoping to win the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate. At a certain point, uh, Abrams has got to be driving you, uh, representing a different candidate, crazy because you've got to get your campaign moving forward.
2: Yeah, that's true. But I would also say this, that whoever the candidate is, whether it's Stacey Abrams or anybody else, I I would say that the most powerful political tool in the state of Georgia today is the Stacey Abrams database and the knowledge base about how they built that 2018 voter turnout. And so if you are thinking, well, I'd like for Stacey Abrams not to run so my candidate can run, you still want to be on good enough terms with her that sh- that personnel will be available to you that that assets that will be available to you and i don't think it would be conceivable to run a statewide campaign in georgia going forward without some of the people some of the core people who were involved in her campaign because she just she she changed the game completely um, and everybody who has experience with that model has been on her payroll as far as i can tell that said, I would also note two things. Mathematics tells me that running for, or being a, a running mate in 2020 for vice president is not mathematically incompatible with a first run for president in 2028. Yeah. That's a well-worn path, of sure. course. Um, and, and the second thing I would say is that the one thing that has, aside from the fact that that apparently she conceives of time on a scale different from most political operatives who are only thinking about the next two years and she's been playing a six or eight or 10 or 12 year game the whole time that we didn't realize it aside from that fact there are few people I can point to today who have the media savvy that Stacey Abrams does and in some ways that almost makes her the perfect candidate for the last to, to go against the last guy or to be part of a team against the last guy who really changed the way campaigns are run which is president trump
1: interesting darshan what's your take where where do you stand on abrams what you hope for her in the next do you want her to see a run for senate do you hope she can hold her uh, keep her powder dry for for a while and and make a race against kemp in 2022 uh, where do you stand on all this
3: well, um, I will tell you, I have a unique perspective in that I had the opportunity to serve with her for six sure. years as minority leader. Um, and when I tell you she is one of the sharpest, cleverest per- people that I have ever met, she is very strategic in everything that she's, she's doing. So when she, whatever decision she makes, I hope people understand that she has crossed every T, dotted every I. She is very methodical and strategic in, in what she's, uh, whatever she decides to do. So whatever she decides to do. Um, there is a game plan and she is going to execute it um, almost perfectly. Um, I- I'm going to be a little selfish and say I do want her as governor of Georgia for obvious reasons. It would make it a lot easier um, to do my job in the legislature if she stayed here in Georgia. or And even if she was a senator, there would still be a connection to Georgia. Um, but, you know, she has so much talent to give. And um, so I I won't be selfish and and say she needs to stay and run for the Senate or or for uh, against Kemp for governor. But whatever she decides to do, if it is president, um, if that's what the country needs and that's what she thinks she's the best fit for, I'll support her in whatever.
1: Kevin, I'm not quite sure what space she occupies, even with the field that is unfolded at this point. Where does she fit the rest of the presidential field? Well,
4: you you have to ask yourself, you know, each one of these candidates, right, they've got to figure out how to differentiate themselves, how they can sound different from everybody else. She does have this this voter issue, you know, uh, depending on how far she can push that. And um, despite it becoming somewhat of a partisan issue, I mean, really, it's not a bad place to be. I mean, who doesn't think it's right for everyone who should vote to get a chance to vote? Who doesn't want to stand up against preventing people from voting? Now, you know, there are a lot of arguments about the facts at hand and exactly what happened in Georgia. But she has claimed that high ground, and there really is no one else who, who has done that, right? And-
0: well, I mean, I think... In her State of the Union response, she actually did a really good job, better than I have heard Democrats do of late, in articulating a Democratic vision that's not just we're frustrated with Trump. There were things that she talked about that Democrats are supposed to stand for. They're supposed to stand for health care. They're supposed to stand for equality. They're supposed to stand for jobs. And so she actually does have... Um, you know, an advantage and a message that actually might be able to cut through the noise of a lot of things that her opponents are trying to talk about when they're talking about Medicare for all um, or other types of things that I think she might she might be effective in actually landing those punches in ways that I think people are still concerned that Democrats are going to struggle to try to make that message resonate.
1: So I also assume that being an African-American candidate from the South does put her in a unique position uh, in if she decides to jump into the presidential race, that's a powerful place to be if you do want to make the race for president.
0: So, I mean, but it also comes with great risk. So sure. for the two black candidates who are already in the race, it's an understanding that the Southern states are going to be the make or break. So whichever one of them kind of comes out ahead, especially if one of them is decisively chosen in South Carolina or in the Super mm-hmm. Tuesday states like Georgia, we assume that the other one is going to drop out. So now if you have three candidates in the race, do they split? the the black vote and then all of them end up in like fifth place. And so therefore none of them actually gets the momentum that they need to get from super Tuesday.
1: If we already assume that Bernie Sanders is probably the inside uh, choice He probably has an inside track in the New Hampshire primary, given that he's next door. Why wouldn't we assume that Stacey Abrams would be a powerful candidate in the South Carolina primary, being a next-door neighbor?
0: Well, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker have been there already. They've now been there for months. Cory Booker's parents used to live here in Atlanta, so it's not like they're going to concede this without a fight. And so they're, they're laying the groundwork already and have a head start on this. So, yeah, I would assume that Abrams would have the home team advantage, but it's not going to be a cakewalk for her because the people who she's running against in these states in particular are not going to concede that without a fight.
4: Right. And just to be crystal clear for people listening, so we'll have Iowa, Mm -hmm. then we'll have New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. which are oddball kind of situations. But then the first real test or the African-American candidates will be the primary in South Carolina. Yes, South Carolina which comes always third, becomes right? crucial, always crucial. And then how soon after that comes Georgia?
0: Well, we don't March. know. I, I mean, the, the assumption is it's going to happen on March 3rd. I've right. heard it haven't. I mean, so I think that needs to be confirmed. But, you know, so when the when all the southern states kind of come up, there's going to be sort of the test about whether or not there's a cohesive African-American support behind one candidate or right. another.
1: Yeah, Todd and Darshan, we should say that, that the legislature a number of years ago put the power to choose the date of the uh, Georgia presidential primary in the hands of the secretary of state. And to the best of my knowledge, I may have missed it. Brad Raffensperger has not put a date on the calendar yet.
2: I don't believe he's put a date on the calendar, and I think that uh, I was—I asked Governor Kemp a couple weeks ago um, how he assessed the uh, the success of the SEC primary, and he said he he thought it really did it it did great things for Georgia because we saw so many candidates. I would expect that uh, when Secretary Raffensperger gets around to looking at the calendar. One of the considerations that that will be going through his mind is creating a repeat of that SEC primary.
1: So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's already been centuries ago that the 2016 <laughs> presidential election happened. Mm-hmm. And it was Brian Kemp, secretary of state, who organized what they call the SEC uh, uh, primary that put those southern states uh, together. Darshan, OK, so here's the question. Um, so. There are a lot of people who still think Abrams may very well run for Senate against David Perdue. Uh, She's been, and I want to be careful about this, she has become a national star. She's been all over the country, uh, every liberal organization in the country, and a number of foundations, think tanks, all want to hear what she has to say. So, good for her. She's been out there really getting her message out to a lot of people. And, and creating networks that she can use for fundraising or continue using for fundraising as she moves forward. But the NRSC now, the, the Republican Senate Campaign Committee, has launched a kind of tongue-in-cheek advertising campaign online. Where in the world is Stacey Abrams suggesting that she needs to come home, that she hasn't been at home, reminding Georgia voters that Stacey hasn't been here. And, and I do raise that question at what point if she is going to run for a statewide office does she does she need to start getting get does she need to get back here and start talking to Georgia voters um not so much talking to the outside world is that an unfair uh, question
3: um well I haven't seen the advertisement that you're talking about it's kind of goofy yeah i i so since the beginning of the year I've been um uh, to at least two or three events that um, the former minority leader have been at. So, when we say she come, she needs to come back to Georgia. Um, I guess I'm looking for something to quantify. Sort of, does she come back once a week? Would you like to see her every month, or sort of what, what does does that look like? But listen, she has plenty of support um, down here in Georgia. Um, I'm certainly sure that she knows what she needs to do if she wants to run for president. Like I said, she is very smart and very strategic in everything that she does. Um, So I I know that she has a plan um, to come back to Georgia and to and. To connect, reconnect with the people—so many millions of Georgians that connected with her and voted for her um, this last election. So I, I know she's she's going to do what it is that she needs to do. But again, I I have seen her a- around here and there, so uh, it'll be interesting to see um, what quantitatively what that looks yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: to some extent, I guess I'm just jealous, Todd. I mean. Stacey's talking to all these reporters in other cities, and we want her to come talk to all of us here, don't you, Kevin? I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, Todd, well, let's finish this by talking once more, going back to the Senate race, and, and everybody can jump in before we have to get to a break. Um, David Perdue's approval numbers, uh, the last time they were polled, and the AJC did it, uh, he's running ahead of vote. Uh, his approval numbers are better than President Trump's in Georgia. They are better than Brian Kemp's in Georgia. He's in the mid-40s, I think, at least according to their poll, which was before the election. Um, Does that make... Would that make Stacey Abrams wonder if he is vulnerable? He is under 50%, but he isn't suffering the way Trump and Kemp are. The question is... Once a campaign is engaged and people really start, Democrats start tying David Perdue to Trump, are things going to change? What's your sense of that?
2: So my sense of of it is this, that there is a substantial number of people uh, on the Republican side of the aisle who believe that 2020 is a better year for us than 2018 was. They say that the magic of the Stacey Abrams campaign in 2018 was to elicit presidential year Turnout in a non-presidential year, and there—that's not completely crazy. Um, I, I think it's—I think it may underestimate her a little bit. Still, um, how people can continue to underestimate Stacey Abrams, I, I don't know. But, hmm. um, but, uh, and, and so there is some thinking that 2020 is a good year, regardless of of where Trump is on the the good and bad scale. That Republican voters will come out. On mass in a way that they typically do in in presidential years, there is also a group within the Republican Party who thinks that Stacey Abrams is the best candidate to run against in twenty twenty for someone like David Perdue because nobody creates a starker contrast between the progressive leftist whatever you want to f- use f- whatever phrase you want to use for her version of politics versus limited government, lower taxes, robust economy, uh, policies of David Perdue. And, and they think that that contrast will serve him well. But, but Abrams,
1: she embraced progressive politics, liberal politics, quite openly. And look how far she got as candidate for governor.
3: That, while at the didn't same win, time being no, a pragmatist. She, right. Well, there are reasons why, you know, there's theories of why she didn't win. But she didn't win.
0: But I mean, yeah, I mean, to have gotten as close as she did and to have a model that actually wasn't perfectly executed means that if they just refine the model, the Democrats might actually hope that she actually might be able to get them over the hump, you know, even if, you know, even if there are cases of voter suppression.
4: Well, mm-hmm. well, to go, to going back to the poll, I, I called it up here, Bill, that this was our poll in January and it's registered voters. We usually do likely, but we had to do registered Um so David Perdue's favorable is forty-five percent, and Stacey Abrams is fifty-one. However, stacy Abrams unfavorable is forty percent, and David Perdue's is thirty. So, I mean, I think to Todd's point, that's the contrast. There's a lot of people who would see
1: stacy unfavorably, and that's probably the way the
4: campaign right, would go I, if you want to beat
1: her. I got to get to a break, um, and as we go to break, I will say there are Todd. I think we know Republicans who are kind of quietly saying, at what point is David Perdue going to put some distance between himself and Donald Trump? This is not the best place to be. We'll see if that happens. It looks to me like he's going with him all the way, doesn't it?
2: What I would say is that, you know, there's it, it's, it's like we were talking about earlier with Renee Unterman and pro-life bills. David Perdue has gone so far down this road yeah. that that I don't think there's a realistic chance of ahead? him okay. of him doing that.
1: Let, go ahead, finish but, that. But I, I would say
2: you. in of all the national politicians you have seen try to be as comfortable and as close with the president as they can while retaining some something of their own set of priorities and, and their own style i think david purdue has threaded that needle as well as anybody right. else has
1: I, I gotta get to a break i'm glad you mentioned fetal heartbeat we're going to talk about it as soon as we come back because darshan kendrick i don't know if you were auditioning for a job as a writer on saturday night live <laughs> or if you were in fact Putting in, uh, l- putting in language into a bill that you seriously hope passes the legislature, your response to the Fetal Heartbeat Bill. We'll talk about it when we come back.
4: Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877 gpb one car Or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks.
2: A long standing legal standard makes it hard to prosecute police for shooting unarmed suspects, which is a problem in the eyes of some politicians.
1: If an officer involved shooting is deemed reasonable after the
2: fact, that it is then justifiable. I believe that that standard needs to be changed. Rethinking the reasonableness standard. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: It's 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Kevin Riley is with us, Andre Gillespie, Todd Ream, and Representative Darshan Kendrick, a Democrat who uh, serves uh, east of and a little portion of South Gwinnett County. Um, and I want to start with you, Darshan, and then enlarge the conversation to talk about the fetal heartbeat uh, bill that is now in play in the state senate, having passed the house on crossover day. You introduced legislation uh, the other day. Was it just yesterday, Monday? Did uh, it well, get...
3: it was a tweet yesterday, and no, no legislation has been introduced.
1: Oh, there isn't a bill. No. Okay, planning well, to file a bill. Though, are yeah. you f- all right? So let's just go with what you tweeted yesterday. <laughs> You essentially said that uh, you felt, given all the concerns about women's reproductive uh, health, that it was time to look at men's reproductive health and look at measures that might in some way regulate uh, men's reproductive health. And uh, you talked about what you called a uh, testicular... What's the the whole language of that?
3: Oh, testicular bill of rights.
1: The testicular bill of rights. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you you are talking about here.
3: So, this is in direct response to HB 481 as you stated. Um if the state of Georgia is going to be concerned about regulating women's Um, reproductive rights, I think it's only fitting that we have that conversation about men's reproductive rights. And so what you saw yesterday was a tweet of um, proposed legislation. And I got this from advocates and people on social media and just hearing people. So it was I can't take credit for all the ideas, Um, but it's to continue the conversation uh, throughout the state of Georgia about if we are going to talk about regulating uh, anyone's body and and right to us. to control their body, then we need to have that discussion with men as well. And
1: what are examples of how you would regulate men?
3: Um, so what I tweeted out, if you don't have in front of you, so one of them was, for example, requiring men to obtain permission from their sex partner before they're able to obtain a prescription for, like, Viagra or any erectile dysfunction. Um, another one was a 24-hour waiting period for men to purchase porn or any type of sex toys in Georgia uh, another one was banning vasectomies and and um, any procedure in heart in part or in whole that and, would prevent um, that that type of process. But
1: and here yeah. was here was another one, uh, and and I, we understand that mm-hmm. a lot of this is tongue in cheek, right? But what? But but to just add one more to to your list, you propose that a DNA test mm-hmm. should be taken. And, and uh, of, of, you know, the, the baby's DNA should be sampled, and that a father should be required to start paying child support when the fetus is six weeks old, which obviously is a direct slap at the fetal heartbeat language that's now currently making its way through. So, this is, again, you're being tongue in cheek. But to be clear, you don't think there's anything funny from your point of mm-hmm. view, and then we'll get other perspectives about this fetal heartbeat bill, which is now in the Senate.
3: Right. It's now in the Senate. Um, but it, it it really is to draw attention to, the, to what I think is an absurdity, clearly unconstitutional, but definitely absurd, um, to be in a state that has the highest maternal death rates, and we are cre- essentially creating a bill that's going to create even more maternal death rates. Um, and so... I have uh, actually gotten a lot of people who are interested in the DNA testing, um, but this this, even though it's a, t- a tongue-in-cheek response, it really is a serious matter to the extent that we are essentially banning abortions or banning safe, safe abortions. I have to make that clarification because abortions are still going to happen. A law is not going to stop that. Um, but. Given the state of Georgia and the rates that we have in maternal deaths, that we haven't expanded Medicaid, that we have uh, counties that, that have no doctors, this is the wrong conversation to be having if we want to talk about women's health care.
1: Um, Todd, I want to get you in here because you've spent a good deal of your career recently working with uh, Senator Renee Unterman, who is going to who is the head of the committee that will take this bill up on Thursday afternoon. Um there is no question that this is the m- single most explosive issue that you could possibly take up this session, especially in the first year of a new governor and lieutenant governor. Is that is that a fair thing to say?
2: I, I think that's probably true, and I and I think that uh, what we saw on the House floor uh, the night that 481 passed that uh, chamber is going to be is going to give you some idea of of the level of emotion that's going to be coming with this hearing. So
1: is this it, it, Brian Kemp said uh, throughout the campaign he was committed to passing the toughest abortion restrictions in the country it by embracing this bill which he's now done after attempting another uh, measure which would have let the Supreme Court decide on Roe before anything would happen in Georgia he's now uh, working with this bill he's supporting this bill um How do we parse the difference here, the important distinction between um, moral values, ethical values, um, feelings about human life, and the political calculations of this sort of thing?
2: I, I, I think that to a large extent depends on most politicians to be willing to set aside the political calculus and make what they consider to be the right decision. Um and and that's often tough but it's not as tough as you would think it is because most people who get elected reflect for the most part the views of the, of their electorate. And so for a Renee Unterman for instance, um her vote will be it will be affected by what she thinks is the right thing to do on the issue, but the political calculus of her of her Senate district is such that what she wants to do in her heart of hearts is almost certainly what a majority of voters in that district would want. And so the politics is the easy part of it. Andra?
0: So I want to talk about the substance and the symbolism yeah, sort of, of the please. bill. Um, you know, in part when I, I I look at Representative Kendrick's proposal, and I compare that to another Democratic proposal that has been put out there that will require older men to sort of report to the sheriff if they ever um, emit um, semen. Um, like I view that as actually so symbolic that it's kind of silly. Um, I think that there are some substantive aspects of your uh, proposed bill, even though you are promoting this sort of as something that's <laughs> symbolic. And I want to talk about the symbolic aspects that are actually really substantive in the bill sort of, you know, as it has gone through the house. And so one of the things that's in there is not just the restriction of abortion to six weeks, but the idea of um, naming fetuses as citizens, you know, mm-hmm. that basically it's sort basically of count a in the population. Bill. Right. It's a personhood bill. And I think that there are some serious implications of this. And, and I say, this as somebody, you know, who, because of my faith identifies as, as, as pro-life, there are 14th amendment issues with this. So that was part of the basis on which Roe versus Wade was, decided so since the 14th amendment talks about people persons born in the United States right we have to sort of understand that and so I know people want to push the issue on trying to you know get something done to reverse Roe versus Wade But, you know, that is something that, in fact, gives me pause. I also question, like, why, since it's not going to count in the U.S. Census, we want to actually count fetuses as citizens, and then wonder what types of issues does that raise for not just counting purposes, but for taxation purposes, and then also for unfortunate people who end up losing sort of babies in the, you know, last trimester of their pregnancy. What do we do about these types of situations and what the implications are of that? So with that in mind, the idea of actually trying to establish paternity on fetuses so that support can start for children before they're born, there's actually something really interesting there, and especially for, you know, Republicans who... You know, want to, you know, deny people welfare benefits until paternity is established and other types of things that we've heard about in public policy for the last 20 years. I think that there's actually something that's really important there that might actually help people understand each other and think before they propose certain types of bills like this. So that part of your bill, I actually do find actually really substantive. And I think that that's an important debate.
1: Well, yeah. oh, sorry. Kevin, uh we, we are well aware everybody in, it, it, who's watching this bill and those who are involved in either opposing it or supporting it realizes that uh, should it pass the Senate uh, and then be signed by the governor, uh, nothing's going to change in this state uh, quickly because this thing is now going to head through the courts. And I'm assuming that I think I'd fair to say that there will be an immediate effort to stay, the uh, order and a federal court would be quite likely to, to agree to a stay until this thing works its way through the courts. But that may be, be exactly what the Republicans mm-hmm. are hoping for, is to mm-hmm. have the bill yep. that will go to the U.S. Supreme Court and 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 establish whether Roe is legal or not. Right. Some have
4: been open about that, that yeah. they want the, the bill to, to for it to be a Georgia law that that goes, although I you know, I haven't obviously checked into this deeply, but there are other laws out there, and the Supreme Court has a lot of options. Yeah, there on are what other they, states
1: that have passed. Texas has got a bill. There are any number of laws that are that are uh, in the courts right now, too. And and I think that there are some pragmatists. I talked to a Republican yesterday you know,
4: who might feel like, look, um, why do this now in Georgia when it's going to really be resolved in other ways as well, especially at a time when... Suburban women and this whole, you know, maybe slipping away as as we head into this next election season. I mean, again, that's the politics versus the, you know, the law and the and the and the uh, sort of moral commitment people feel around these issues. But, um, yeah, I mean, it is it is just the great the great disagreement in our country right now. I mean, it is, and people see it so differently. I mean, I just know from the letters we get and the emails I get and even the terminology we use and the stories as we cover it, people just see this thing so very differently. Darshan?
3: Yeah, so going back to this concept of a fetus being a person, I think one of the interesting things about uh, the DNA uh, testing is if we decide to go down that route, when we Hmm. talk about illegal immigration um, if babies are born, obviously, in the United States, then they are U.S. citizens. So the implication with that would be that if there is somebody who is in this in the United States illegally and they are six weeks pregnant, that baby essentially is a U.S. citizen, and so should receive the same protections, the same degree of care as a regular U.S. citizen. I think that is going to get people thinking about the conversation again around when does life or personhood begin, but to your point, this is absolutely is a test case for the Supreme Court. Absolutely. We reside in one of the most conservative circuits, the 11th Circuit, um, and they are hoping and praying that Trump nominees that are on the Supreme Court are going to overturn Roe v. Wade, and I did an interview this morning, and I said I think that they are miscalculating. um, It's a bad strategy, and I think they're miscalculating what's going to happen when it comes to the Supreme Court, just based on On the history and American jurisprudence of how uh, the the jurists of the Supreme Court usually rule but um, but it it, it is very interesting that we have fetuses that are um, counted as people and they are you can count them on your taxes I mean I I think we're gonna have some logistical issues when you talk about tax returns and things like
2: that there there are a couple things about the question why do this in Georgia today one of them I would say is that if your strategic goal is the overturn of roe against wade what you want to do is you want to create similar laws in different states and get different decisions from different circuit courts of appeal that's how you get to the Mm -hmm. supreme court is to have the ninth circuit in california and the eleventh circuit come to different decisions and so you need to have this passed not just in georgia but in as many states as possible if that's your strategic goal the other part of it on the politics of it this represents, a, in some ways, a, a divide within the Republican Party. Those of us who say that we need to get more combative, more, um, more hardcore right, and that's why we didn't do as well as we should have in 2018, is that we weren't conservative enough. There are a lot of people who believe that. There are others who believe that we should be putting. we as a republican party should be putting the brakes on anything controversial anything where women may differ from men in their in their reception of of hearing to these bills and that is that is something that's being fought out in uh... the state legislature it's likely to be fought out in the county and district and state conventions that are coming to a head uh, May eighteenth in Savannah, um, and that's something that we're going to be fighting about right up until the general yeah. election of twenty twenty mm-hmm. and beyond. Yeah, I mean, under-
0: all I would say is that for people who you know want to talk about creating a culture of life, and especially if you want to do it in a bipartisan fashion, then we also have to be thinking about conception to grave and sort of whether or not we're treating people well, whether we're educating them well, whether we're making it you know possible for them to have jobs um, and sort of be able to to, to live life. Um, sort of in a way that is is meaningful for folks. And then particularly if you're trying to do this from a family planning standpoint. And so this is an interesting issue because you bring up vasectomies because that's the closest you're going to get to pregnancy with mm-hmm. men. And um, is to well if you don't want people having abortions can are there are there things that we can do to actually prevent abortions in the first place and so for people who want to sort of be anti-abortion but then want to act all skittish about contraception and about comprehensive sex education where values can actually be included in there right then you also have to think about doing this comprehensively as opposed to making this reflexive okay we're just gonna ban abortion on this end like there, like there there's other things that need to be a part of this com- conversation that aren't necessarily being a part of this conversation
2: and and I think the The other parts of that conversation that's one of the one of the unintended casualties of the polarization of the American electorate I think that 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago you probably could have gotten some of the pro-life folks and some of the pro-choice folks in a room and talked about solutions for reducing the number of abortions through means other than statewide legislation I don't think that's possible anymore. I don't think you could get them together for dinner uh around a table for dinner.
1: Yeah, Darshan, you're not yeah, very I, vigorously. Well,
3: I I, <laughs> I I do think that you could get some people um obviously i mean i'm willing right um because i do want to see the number of abortions i'm not out here you know trying to have people have abortions it's a, it's a noble goal um so i will a say a noble
1: that, goal to reduce them right okay right. That's, a, that's
3: a noble enough okay. goal right just want to
1: make sure we understand um, what you're saying
3: but um but you're right on the right and on the left you know, if we go to the outliers, there are people who you know you're not going to get to the table. But I, I am just hopeful that there are still people. And listen, even though I propose this package, I tell people all the time I don't have hate against anybody who voted for it. I don't like it, obviously. But at the end of the day, I am still willing to be kind and have a a conversation with you about it, so long as you don't start calling me a baby killer.
1: And this is why you're a perfect person to have on Political Rewind, where we encourage exactly that kind of conversation. (laughs) Uh, Real quickly, and and then we're going to go to a break. Uh, Todd, is there any reason to think this bill is not going to pass the Senate? I know it'll be dramatic, as it was in the House, tremendously dramatic. But is this thing on a fast track for passage?
2: it's i would say it's on a fast track for passage out of committee i think it's on a fast track to a floor vote i think you're going to have um questions about the vote margin because there are some legislators who are in marginal districts yeah. who saw mm-hmm. what what yeah. would it, what would normally be expected to be a tw- 10 or 12 vote win go to a two, to a 2% win and so there's going to be I was talking about the strains within the Republican Party, those who want to kind of calm down and those who want to go harder. Um, Some of those who want to calm down have votes in the Senate um, and have districts that are more likely to not even want to have this discussion. And so... It becomes it becomes perhaps a close vote in the yeah Kevin.
1: Before we go to break, uh, there is a political component to this, a big one, and that's all those suburban voters, our female suburban voters out there, some of whom are in the part of your district, Darshan, who have already shown they're they're willing to abandon the Republican Party on other issues, and this one uh, is not going to make it. uh, It's not going to invite them to come back. No, I think it's a tough one for him. I mean, I it, we'll see what happens, but it's
4: uh... they, they a lot of people didn't, just didn't want to deal with it. I mean, it's that simple.
2: I, Real I,
1: quick, because we got to. I want to push
2: back on this idea that that these issues are automatically antithetical to suburban women voters. There are some for whom it is, some for whom it is not. But if you look at the pro life movement in Georgia. It has been largely led by women from the suburbs of Atlanta for as long as I can remember. And we have active members, there are active members of that movement. Hmm. And there are voters in every district of the state of Georgia who are female um, and who are pro-life. Okay, so here's my
1: thought experiment, and it's sort of silly. Um, One of the raps, Andra, I know we got to get to a break, but, but let me continue. This is too interesting. Andra, so um, one of the concerns that Darshan makes clear in her tongue- in cheek uh, legislative package, uh, this is about men mm-hmm. uh, passing laws that determine uh, uh, the fate of a woman's body. All right, so the thought experiment is this: Would a legislative body made up of majority of women who have who are the kind of women Todd's talking about be as likely to vote for? A an, a an abortion restriction bill as men are?
0: Well, I mean, I think you do have some who would behave exactly as the men do, but I think that there would be greater, I think that there's a chance with greater deliberation and people coming from lived experience to be, even if they're going to take a pro-life stance, to not put extremist language right. in bills and to not do things that actually ignore gynecology and the things that everybody has experienced. <laughs> like, you know, if you have never had to have a pap smear before or a pelvic exam, then there's certain things that you probably aren't going to put forward like, you know, transvaginal ultrasounds and other types of things, you know, as a requirement before you can have an abortion. So yeah, I think that, you know, women do bring a different sensibility because there's a different lived experience because the anatomy is different.
1: I'm sorry, I've got to get to a break. I'm way late, but this conversation has been so interesting. I didn't want to interrupt it, but let's do it now. And we'll come back with more on Political Rewind.
3: On the next Fresh Air, the New York Times Deputy General Counsel talks about issues he's faced during the Trump presidency when he says the war over press freedom is about the very nature of truth. David McCraw has also dealt with the publication of WikiLeaks documents and sexual assault allegations against Harvey Weinstein, lawsuits, kidnappings, and more. He has a new memoir. Join us.
1: Fresh Air is this afternoon at three on GPB and gpbnews.org
4: touchdown john nelson here from gpb sports reminding you that in georgia the four seasons are not winter spring summer and fall it is football spring football crouton and national signing day on the football fridays in georgia podcast we'll tell you the stories on and off the field subscribe at gpb.org forward slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found
1: We have very little time left, so we're going to take up an issue that I think is kind of fun to talk about. Uh, Kevin, uh, the the governor, Brian Kemp, the conservative Republican, uh, gave an interview to one of your reporters, probably Bluestein, I would guess, uh, in which he said uh, he was uh, pretty impressed with the vote on expanding the medical marijuana law in Georgia to allow for production and distribution of uh, uh, cannabinoid, cannabinoid oil and uh, he seemed to say it was a, something he could support. So with the governor's backing, a bill like this ought to go through the Senate. And the next thing you know, we're going to be producing uh, marijuana oil in the state of Georgia.
4: Yeah, I just think the the marijuana proponents are just wearing everybody down. I mean this thing just won't just won't go away and after a while after a while it's like, gee, I just
1: don't care that much anymore about it. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe they need to take a toke or two to calm down. down, Is that what you're saying? All right. Darshan? Go ahead, Todd, real
2: quick. I, I I would say that that this is getting a lot more traction than it would have before because of the emergence of respectable Republican proponents of this at first you had a number of state legislators uh, who I saw change their mind overnight listening to a grandparent of a kid who needed this and now you've got folks like me I'm I'm fairly well known within the Republican Party I also had a wife who had the CBD oil and I can talk with I can talk about its effectiveness um, and and the shortcomings of the current system not just from the perspective of not being able to get it, but not being able to get reliable dosage information on the bottle or from a medical professional. Yeah. And, and so that has really changed, I think, the, the, the deal is more people know somebody who has benefited.
1: From Darshan, this. you've still got a big law enforcement community out there mm-hmm. that says this is a bad idea because it paves the way for eventual passage of recreational marijuana in the state as well.
3: Well, I think um, the leadership has been clear that we are we're we're not at that point, no matter how many bills have been passed. But what's also missing from this conversation is we just passed uh, a bill related to yeah. medical, well, um, to to dispensaries, and um, and so when you we're talking about the medical side, but do you can you imagine that this is going to make millionaires literally overnight? It's about twelve licenses that are going to be given out, and they're going to be able to go out and um and and find. Uh, these distributors. So when we're talking about marijuana, also remember that there is a big economic in, um, upside to this that is going to make a lot of people very, very rich, very, very fast because of the way that the bill um, talks about licensing and who can who can actually grow. Do you think
1: Nugent might give up this show and get one of those mm-hmm. licenses? Right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: that's a great point, Andre. That's going to be the next thing we'll watch once this bill, if it does in fact go through, how these licenses are given out. And, oh, I see it. I see two years worth of investigative reporting by the AJC, (laughs) at least. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely
0: see that. I mean, I think the other thing to watch is to see whether or not this gets decriminalized at the federal level, because that's the holdup, you know, with the state is that, you know, states can decriminalize marijuana all they want if it's still listed, you know, as a class one narcotic at the federal level. It's still illegal and the feds can kind of come in. So people might actually be more open to sort of the recreational side if the federal laws change
1: all right we are completely out of time except kevin uh, riley i know it's sold out but uh, we're going to spend some time on tomorrow's show talking about the martyr referendum again uh you have a big forum up there in gwinnett county to uh, talk about it tonight
4: we'll be up there this evening with a really great panel and with with a simple goal, not unlike the goal of the show, which is to let people ask questions and get information. We're not in the business of of telling people which way they should vote, but instead helping them understand. We'll
1: be reading the stories uh, that come out of that tomorrow morning, and I'm sure we'll be talking about them on the show tomorrow. So Dr. Andre Gillespie, Darshan Kendrick, uh, Todd Ream, Kevin Riley, thank you so much for uh, being here for Political Rewind today. Just a quick note. A lot of you who watch on uh, Facebook Live, you rarely see me wearing a necktie. I happen to be wearing one today, and I just want to very briefly tell you why. This morning, Central Atlanta Progress, which is the organization that works on economic development in downtown Atlanta, gave their most prestigious award, the Dan Sweat Award. Dan Sweat was a great visionary leader in this city. To Sam Williams, a former president of the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, a true visionary, a man who has had as much to do with making downtown Atlanta a better place over the years, and I was privileged enough to be one of the people who got to pay tribute to my great friend, Sam Williams. So I wear a necktie, Sam, if you're out there listening to the show today, in your honor. Congratulations on a great award well-deserved. And to all of you in the audience, we'll see you again tomorrow at 2 o'clock.